believe me, we, we all know that we can all be better writers. So <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I, I write real good, though. Yes, you do. <laughs> Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. In this episode, we pulled together a group of four experts in the legal and writing field to discuss the issues around legalese and writing in plain English. Yeah, so the, the, the fantastic four that we have are Neil Guthrie, the author of Guthrie's Guide to Better Legal Writing, Chris Trudeau, who wrote The Public Speaks, an empirical study of legal communication, Jesse Katz, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and legal writing editor, and Sarah Harris, a lawyer and an editor on the American Lawyers Young Lawyers Editorial Board. So really, really great group. They have a lot of suggestions on how to improve legal writing. And, you know, really be honest, Marlene, I think their advice could work with any writing. Oh, I, I agree with you 100%. So we have a lot to unpack in that section. So let's jump into this week's information, inspirations. My inspiration this week, you know, it's not, it's not an article like it usually is, but rather it's this event I attended that was sponsored by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. And there was a subgroup within uh, the Young Lawyers Association of First-Generation Lawyers. Mm-hmm. And while I am actually a first-generation lawyer, I'm, you know, I'm not exactly young. So, <laughs> <Me neither. laughs> so you know, I, I pulled some favors and uh, from my Jackson Walker colleagues, Sang Shin and Monica Lopez to sneak me in. The panel was fantastic, and they discussed the issues around recruiting at large law firms and at boutique firms and at uh, government agencies. So there's a panel of four there. And while the information, you know, there was some great information and advice given by the diverse group of panelists. There was actually this question from the audience that was the thing that impacted me the most on this. So there was this law student who is a young black male, and he mentioned that in one of the applications he filled out online, he was asked why his experiences as a minority would benefit the law firm to which he was applying. And the panel, oh. yeah, the panel just kind of looked stunned that this this question would be would, would even be asked, but. The reasons behind this is, so he was asking, you know, what are the reasons that a question like this is, is being asked to minority applicants? And why do minorities have to explain why their being a person of color matters to the firm? And quite frankly, is this a question that's practical or even fair to be asking? And I don't think it is. <laughs> well, I, I know that there is a discussion on Fishbowl about this as well, and you had mm-hmm. a lot of, of interesting commentary yeah. ranging from the ethical to the practical. Yeah. yeah. Would, if, if you're part of that, I would definitely check that out. I, I think it was just an example of some of the firms out there that are still being a bit tone deaf on diversity. And then really I would hope that if, I saw this or anyone I know were to see this sort of question that they would call out the recruiting committee and and have them understand that this is not going to be interpreted well and that they should not really be asking these sorts of questions on the on the recruiting questionnaires. 
Sounds uh, like it caught it caught more than a few people off guard too. <laughs> yes, so no, nobody was really expecting that, which <laughs> you know makes your your point all that more important. My inspiration this week is an excellent article by Evan Parker. Hi, Evan, mm-hmm. who is a PhD and the founder of Parker Analytics Consultancy, which focuses on talent diversity and strategy. Uh, Parker Analytics is also the official analytics partner to the Leadership Council on Legal Diversity. So in the article, Evan walks us through a primer on how to present data to legal audiences. And this is this is perfect timing because, you know, this is really the holy grail in this space, you know, and, and it really touches on a message we're going to hear later in the interview. You know, how do you make your message compelling to your audience? And Evan really nails it when he offers his three guiding principles. The first is to understand what data benefits legal professionals and lawyers. The second is default to conceptual illustrations and intuition. And the third, less is more. You're right. That, that does sound a lot like what we're about to talk about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the first principle, you have to know your audience. You know, it's, it's what they care about and not what you think they should care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second principle, conceptual illustrations and intuition. I mean, I literally clapped my hands <laughs> when <laughs> I read Evan's description of, of the orange line to get his audiences to understand the concept of a regression model. So here's the orange line. This is the profit you would expect from an average law firm. Factors to the right, increase profits. Factors to the left, decrease profits. Just elegant. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and the third principle, less is more. Again, the topic of our interview this episode, say it in fewer words. Keep the explanation of the data simple. Keep the visuals simple. Uh, keep in mind the the data to ink ratio. So this is this is an Edward Tufte rule. <laughs> I was wondering how long it would take you to, to invoke. <laughs> how do Tufte? I get Edward Tufte into the conversation? <laughs> it's like I, I really need to get his autograph someday. You um, it's his rule to keep the viewer focused on the data, so not just the pretty colors or cool graphics. You know, I love Evan Com- Evan's comment that uh, I'm not going to comment on like 3D bar charts. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> amen to that. Yeah. It's like, oh, 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 and, and and Greg, I think we need a T-shirt that says "Don't be a quant jock." <laughs> a quant jock. <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I pass this on to my team immediately, and I know that we will be applying these principles in our presentations. And Evan will probably be reaching out. Yeah. Oh, and I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to Jason Barnwell for his thoughtful article in Law360 on law firm evolution. It's an overall rich interview, and being in the innovation space, a couple of things Jason said really struck me. The scarcest thing we have is human attention. And we're going to be using support technology to focus this attention where it's most needed, where we need judgment, creativity, and empathy. And I thought that framing was very powerful. Yeah, it was good stuff. Uh, Jason always has something wonderful to say. So, And that wraps up this week's Information Inspirations. Well, one of our biggest fans of the show is... Uh, well, she's my sister-in-law, Wendy. So, <laughs> yay, Wendy! 
Well, she loves the innovation topics, and somehow or another, she's able to apply some of what we covered to her high school classes that she teaches. So, Wendy reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and suggested that we talk about how bad legal writing can be. And she said that she's seen some pretty unreadable legal documents in her interaction with attorneys and wondered why they would make it so difficult to read and understand. So, that motivated us into pulling together a group of authors on the subject, one from a law firm, one a law professor, one a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who is now a legal editor at a big law firm, and then Greg grabbed one of his attorneys in his firm's Dallas office to sit in and give us her perspective as someone who is actually writing legal documents. So let's get right into it and hear what they have to say about writing in plain English. We would like to welcome our four fantastic guests today on The Geek in Review. So we're going to talk about communicating in plain English, and especially when it comes to legal issues and topics. Yes, our fantastic four today are Neil Guthrie, the Director of Professional Development Research and Knowledge Management at Aird and Burles LLP in Toronto, and he's also the author of Guthrie's Guide to Better Legal Writing, Chris Trudeau law and medical professor at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and the author of The Public Speaks, an empirical study of legal communication, as well as journal articles on plain English writing for lawyers in healthcare. Jesse Katz, litigation editor at O'Melveny and Myers, as well as Pulitzer Prize winning journalist before taking on his editing role. And Sarah Harris, a Jackson Walker associate who is known for her legal writing skills and is editor for the American Lawyers Young Lawyer Editorial Board. Welcome, everybody. All right. So the idea behind this topic actually came in from my sister-in-law, Wendy Anderson, who is not a lawyer, but she's rather... But full of good ideas, actually. She has thrown out a few ideas here. Uh, She's actually a science teacher in Colorado. Uh, She brought this up when we were talking, and she found that her communications with lawyers, especially written communications, were just simply too complex for her to understand. So she thought that, actually, she thought that lawyers did this on purpose uh, so that her, that she would feel intimidated or that lawyers think that if they make a legal issue easy for a layperson to understand, it might have a negative effect on the lawyer's business. So uh, before we begin, anyone want to agree or disagree uh, with the, my sister-in-law's interpretation? I can jump in if you want. This is Chris. Hey, Chris. Yeah, I tend to disagree. Well, I don't disagree with your sister feeling that way. Uh, I absolutely, you know, understand that that she feels that way. Uh, in one of the study, one of the studies I did in 2012, which you mentioned in the opening, uh, but I also I also redid that uh, last year from an international perspective. But that was one of the things we asked people who had used a lawyer within the last uh, one to five years, I believe, was the first mm-hmm. study. Kind of how it makes them feel. When lawyers use, and I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing the actual question, but uh, how it makes them feel when, when lawyers use Latin terms or complicated terms to explain a problem. Right. And, you know, that these were people who had said that they had quit reading a document, you know, midway through at the time. And one of the 81, I think, kind of qualitative responses was almost exactly what you just said your sister felt is, you know, it makes me feel like they're trying to do this to intimidate me. I think that the particular comment was, I used to work for some good lawyers, 
and I don't like it when you know when other lawyers think that they can you know that they can uh, intimidate me by by using legalese. And so I think a lot of people feel that way. And it's one of the things that with my first year law students that I always say is, you know, how come you feel like you want to write this way? And one of the reasons they often say is, well, everything we read, you know, we usually start first year of law, a law school reading old opinions that have this type of language in it. And they want to feel like they're part of the in crowd, you know, because they feel like uh, they have imposter mm. syndrome and those type of things. And so law school kind of perpetuates that. And so that's what I try and stem right at the beginning is like, remember how you felt in August, right before you came here and you had to look up every word. Right. Your clients feel that way all the time. You now know these words. And so do not, you know, remember how you felt because that will help you better connect with clients who are in the same boat you were before you started law school for the most part. If I could jump in, it's Neil. Uh, I agree completely. It's the sort of, you've been initiated into the lingo and you feel you have to use it to make it sound like you know what you're talking about. But then I think what sets in is a sort of superstition that if I don't use this, maybe I'm losing something. So I have to use this archaic language. If I, if I don't, maybe something will fall off. Uh, and a lot of it is just sort of ignorance in not knowing why you could say it in a clearer way and not really digging into what the words mean and figuring out, well, do I really have to say witnesses at the beginning of an agreement? No. <laughs> you know, one other thought, this is Jesse, is is I think some of it might be a conscious uh, attempt to, to, you know, model a certain kind of sound. But I think some of it's also uh, unconscious and, and it's u- not unique to law. I think the more people become expert at what they do. And, and, and you'll see this among educators or, or, or scientists or, you know, academics. Um, you know, we all get sort of tainted by our, our knowledge or cursed by our knowledge. And uh, we forget what it's like not to know these things. So we start talking in a kind of jargon or, or a, sh- a shorthand that um, where we, we forget that our audience isn't on the same page. Yeah. I, I remember now I, I started law school in 1995. And the the thing that shocked me the most was I had like 80 pages of reading I needed to do before I even showed up for my first class. And Chris, I think you, you, you mentioned it that, you know, what I read had probably been written in the 1800s. And, you know, there was not only has English progress since then, but the amount of legalese that was in there. So I'm, you know, you know what you know. And so you probably immediately think, well, oh my God, I got to write like this too, in order, in order to, to pass this class. So. Right. And then the curse of knowledge point is really right on. I mean, I'm sure many of you here and maybe some of your listeners have, uh, have heard of this book by Steven Pinker, uh, a sense of style. And that's where he talks about the curse of knowledge as being part of the problem with academic writing. He doesn't focus on, on legal writing specifically, but on academic writing. And I think that is one thing I think we all fall into that trap sometimes is, is it's hard to unring the bell when we know something, but we have to put ourselves into this mindset of, all right, well, what, what does an actual user, somebody who's actually either a, a first level user or a secondary level user of whatever it is that I'm writing, what don't they know that I know? And so that's that's always what I try and do when I'm when I'm writing things. Okay, so I have a couple of questions for um, Neil and Chris, but but anybody, please feel free to kind of jump in if you have something to say about this as as well. So Neil, when when you think of the term legalese, 
what comes to mind? And do you have some examples of uh, some overly complicated communications that you've seen in the past? Sure. Uh, when people say uh, that sounds like it was written by a lawyer, it's not generally intended as a compliment. Um, <laughs> I dug out a sample that is from an actual letter received uh, by a colleague. To be fair, I think the writer is about 85 and practices in a small town in rural Canada, but it will give you a flavor of the kind of stuff you still see. We acknowledge your recent correspondence and attachment of the 29th instant with thanks, same being forwarded herewith to our client for reference and review, with the writer confirming our telephone conversation of the 19th and your undertaking not to take steps to the detriment of our client without ample prior notice to the contrary being first given to the writer, our client presently being in the process of retaining litigation counsel to deal herewith, with service being endorsed herewith on the true copy as requested. That's all one sentence. <laughs> wow. And, and you, and you did actually, it with like out taking a breath. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> it's not actually clear what the herewith in fact refer to. Um, but people still do this. You know, it's 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 so funny too because I mean, I went to law school around the same time um, Greg did, and and I remember there was a big focus on, you know, you have to take the legalese out of your writing, and yet here we are many years later, and it's still there. You know, why are why are people holding on to this? Yeah, not helpful. I mean, it went from lawyer to lawyer, so it's not as bad as if it goes lawyer to client, but I suspect this guy writes this way to his clients yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, well Sarah, uh, did you understand what that, what that letter said? I have to say I, I got lost. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine the lawyer on the other end got lost too. So. Yeah. <laughs> so Chris, in, in your research on, on legal communications, what is it that you found that people that people fear the most when it comes to legal communications. And I guess maybe that's on, on both sides. Um, you know, the people who are writing and the people who are reading it. Right. That's exactly what, what I, what, when you said that, that's what I was thinking is fear is, yeah, it takes both sides. And I, I would say first we started already talking about the fear from the lawyer side is that we, that we're either leaving something out because we don't really understand the nuance of the word and so instead of trying to understand what all of that means, well, let's just do what we've done in the past. And what we've done in the past was passed down from what we've done in the past and what we've done in the past. And so at some point, somebody probably wrote what Neil just read, um, just read 100 years ago, you know, or 80 years ago, you know, especially if you with these systems, you can just pull your bosses, mm -hmm. you know, past contracts or past documents or whatever, or your firms, and then just pull things out. Is it kind of takes over for your thinking? Like, well, I need something like this, and this seems like it's something like this, and so I don't think people really feel. So I think that's that's one of the fears is that they don't know all of the nuance that somebody who came before them knows, so they just kind of defer to how it was done rather than taking the time of thinking about how it will actually actually work. Uh, and then again, the fear of of not fitting in as a lawyer and those type of things. That's that's the fear I think on the on the law, lawyer law side. On the human side and the client side of things, I think uh, fear might not be really be the right word. We tend to think, I think as lawyers, that people fear our writing. But in fact, what I tend to find is people just don't care, right? We get so much stuff in the mail. Let's say I, I do a lot of training for the, for the Arkansas Office of Child Support Enforcement, and everybody who gets a letter from the Office of Child Support Enforcement hates that letter. They don't necessarily fear the letter, 
they just don't want to read it. It's the last thing they want to read. Even if you're positive, you know, that you're getting money, you're not going to look at, you're not going to read the letter. You're going to take the check and then put it in your checking account. Those type of so I think fear is the wrong word, but I think they dread or just, like, this is something else that's on my plate that I have to yeah. deal with. It's more of an annoyance. It's more of an annoyance than and a And it fear. makes it more complicated than it has to be. It, yeah. It's like, now I need to go, you know, call my friend that's a lawyer or get my own lawyer or look things up on the internet to even figure out what any of that stuff means. <laughs> And so, you know, it's, it's just going to take me more time. I mean, I feel it that way, too, when I get an insurance document or I get something else that I, I just have to go right. through. We all feel Yeah, I was way. just thinking of those prospectus or annual reports I get from uh, investments that, you know, are an right. inch thick and, and no one reads. <laughs> so, yeah, I just tear them up for the yeah. most part. So, Jesse, you have a very interesting position there at O'Melveny in that, you know, one, you're not a lawyer. You've never been to law school, as far as I know. But your firm hired you in order for you to help them improve their legal writing. So can you give us kind of just a little background on, on what it is you do and what, what you offer there at O'Melveny? Well, the, my, my great skill set here is that I offer ignorance. All right. Uh, you know, hopefully I come with, with uh, you know, fresh eyes and, and uh, you know, a sharp ear. I, I ask a lot of dumb questions, quite frankly. Like, do we have to say it like this? Um, do we have to cite this thing? Uh, is this argument a plausible argument, or are we just doing this out of there's some ob- obligatory need to include this? I have a big picture uh, response and, and a kind of more nuts and bolts thing. Um, the big picture is I think lawyers are excellent at finding out the answer to really complicated mm-hmm. questions. I work with very bright, uh, high achieving people who um, you know, research things and, and come up with creative solutions to really complicated, high-stakes legal challenges. But the, the muscles uh, that go into finding that answer are really different from the muscles that go into explaining that answer. And so I find that a lot of people are really burdened by those complexities and, and all the things that can go wrong, all the conditions and caveats you need to add to every sentence and, and all the just, you know, the legal, uh, you know, implications of everything. And I, I would never want to suggest that I am fast and loose with any of that, but I, I don't carry the same burden. I can intervene uh, either in a conversation or on the page asking uh, or finding simpler ways of conveying these mm-hmm. ideas. So I, I think the, the bigger sort of writing challenge is people try to say too much, convey too much material, rather than focusing on uh, what we really need to know. Why should I care? What's at right. stake? It kind of kind of reminds me of my, uh, my father-in-law, the story about he's really good at math. He's really poor at teaching math and so he get he jumps to the answer because he's already made certain leaps of understanding and goes to the answer so do you, do you find it something similar to that do the lawyers jump or do they overly explain to to get to the answer yeah i i think they they do they do both quite frankly 
I think there's an assumption that the the court, whether it's a clerk or a judge, is like right with us, is is in, as immersed in these issues as we are, cares about them as deeply as we are, we do, and that we can just like sort of pick up the conversation uh, wherever we left off. And and I think a lot of what I try to do is say, look, let's remind people what this case is about. Let's remind them. Uh, why they should care, and let's remind them why why we need to win. On a sort of a more mechanical level, I think what I try to focus on are the images that allow the reader to see uh, why our side should prevail. I'm very uh, much against adjectives and adverbs that purport to be persuasive. Uh, if I see, you know, a, a brief that has a lot of clearlies and manifestlies and patentlies, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you're going to see my, uh, my track changes all over right. that. And I, you know, I really urge people, and, and this is just good writing advice, no matter what field you're in, is to show, don't tell. Right. And that means focusing on, on concrete actions, you know, what have we done or what did we not do as opposed to trying to characterize that. And uh, Jesse, is the service that you offer, is it required or voluntary? What's, how, how do people uh, within your firm get to use your service? Yeah, absolutely uh, voluntary. Um, I am, I'm a resource as uh, we now have two other editors uh, who work here with me. You know, we're big law. So if everyone were required to use us, uh, we'd be paralyzed uh, right away. So it's really about um, kind of internal uh, marketing in a way, building the relationships, you know, showing a, a attorney colleague uh, what we can do and how they can fit us into their workflow. But I would say that the people who then work with us and kind of try us out and see what the result is going to be, I think a light bulb goes off and they're like, my God, why, why wouldn't I use this person mm -hmm. who is going to enhance the quality of the work, take a load off of my plate uh, and just make everything, hopefully make everything better without, you know, mucking things up. I don't think anyone views it as a negative or there's any stigma attached it's just you. If you reach out to an editor at O'Melveny, what you're really conveying is you care deeply about your writing, and you're going to take advantages uh, take advantage of all the resources the firm has to help you achieve that goal. So, do you think this sort of role, this editor sort of role, is is trending in other firms? You know, for example, I've heard of firms having writing consultants available to them, and then they work with the lawyers to improve their writing. So is this something that, that you see growing? Um, I think there's maybe a growing appreciation that the caliber of, of legal writing n needs work. <laughs> I, I, th I think what I like about the, my position here at O'Melveny is the people here are very smart, and they're so smart that they realize they don't know everything about writing. You know, they recognize some of their own limitations. And I, I think other firms, other lawyers are uh, getting on board with that, creating a position and bringing somebody in full time as part of the fabric and culture of the firm. I think that's a step that we haven't seen anyone else do. I could be wrong. Look, O'Melveny's been around for more than 130 years. Uh, this position was created 10 years ago. And, you know, for that first century plus, O'Melveny somehow made it through, you know, without uh, without any editing help. Uh, How did they do it? And uh, But now there's three What's of us. What's your secret? <laughs> did you say there's there's three editors 
Yeah, we uh, we hired two new people last mm. year. Uh, another one uh, with me in our Los Angeles office, and and a third editor in our New York office. But we're all available to anyone anywhere in the firm. Very interesting. Well, Sarah, I, I asked you to be, be on the show today. I, I kind of begged for you to be on the show today uh, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was, uh, first of all, we had too many men on the show, so I <laughs> wanted to uh, break that up a little bit. And the the other is, is I actually was the one that hired Sarah to, to come work at the firm. And then That's she right. was she was stolen by someone that really loved her writing. And I remember him coming and saying that he loved the fact that you were able to take a very difficult and complex issue and explain it in, in plain English and kind of tease on it. Said, so she writes uh, so that even a lawyer can understand it. And, and, <laughs> and he really agreed to that. So And really, that may not sound like a big deal, but it is. Uh, it is hard to find lawyers that can actually write very well. We've heard Neil and Chris and, and Jesse talk and said, but I mean, you're actually writing out these uh, these briefs and letters to clients. So, what is it that you do that you think makes it easy for others to understand uh, the issues that you talk about? Sure. Uh, well, I think this is going to sound uh, pretty familiar, similar to what uh, Jesse was talking about his goal being. But for me, when I'm working on a piece of persuasive writing, I tend to think of my goal as being twofold, sort of one, to tell a story to a reader who probably doesn't otherwise care about the issue and my client to keep them engaged, and then two, to solve my client's problem. And so in that framework, I think the biggest question to focus on is why? Why should the reader care about this? Why does this issue matter? Why should my client win? And then within that, for me, it becomes much easier to just say what I mean, you know, whether that's synthesizing the issues in a way that aligns with the story and the theme or just, you know, in the more the fundamentals. If you know where you're going and you know that those what those goals are with the focus always being, why should I care? Why should I, the judge, care or the law clerk? Writing short, simple sentences, I think, is, is always better. And I'm able to do that easier when I have that framework of, uh, you know, moving from point A to point B in trying to achieve those goals of keeping the reader engaged and explaining why my client's perspective is the right one. I like the fact that it's about telling the story, but the, the second part of your, of your answer, I, I think I like even more in that it's not about let me tell you what you should know, but rather let me tell you why this, this is important from, a, from an angle that you, one, can understand it and, and two, can appreciate it. Again, uh, it sounds simple, but, but it, it's not. It's, it's interesting because it, it, the rules that Sarah's applying, I mean, it's very similar to rules that you have in, in broadcast, um, you know, keeping short, simple um, sentences um, that are sort of easily understood, focusing on, you know, why should I care? Because, of course, you know, they can turn you off and switch to something else in, in a heartbeat. So, you know, you have to capture their attention. Um, so it's, it's interesting that there's those parallels there. Yeah. Do you see that, Jesse, since, since you have a uh, media background? I think that's uh, very accurate. I, you know, I spent 15 years at the LA Times and then another nine years at Los Angeles Magazine as a, as a staff writer. And as, you know, as a journalist, you're, you are constantly in a battle for your reader's attention. And I feel like 
every sentence has to have some little nugget that satisfies the reader, even if it's just uh, a single word or a bit of flourish in your punctuation or something that propels you forward. And then each paragraph has to you know, deliver something. And I think sometimes our legal documents are written with the idea that, well, somebody's going to have to read this. Uh, you know, They're getting right. paid to read this. And I'm, I'm always worried about when are they going to stop reading it? It's like, I feel like saying something about like written flair or written bling, but I don't, I don't think that's quite right. Because <laughs> it's like, is, you know, is it, is it like, is it necessary? It's like, well, maybe not. But, but, you know, you do have to sort of bring your own, I don't know, you have to make it stand out somehow from the rest of what, what they're reading. I think that's exactly right. I think I, I have been in situations where, it, you know, it seems like lawyers are afraid to make a, a brief interesting, are afraid almost to give it that flair. But for me, again, yeah, you want to make sure that the whoever is reading your brief is going to get to the end of it and, and is going to see the full picture. Um, and, you know, if it you're, you have you know, 25 aforementioned and pursuant to, and I mean, that just weighs it down so much, you're making it very hard for them to want to get through it and to get through it in a way that really shows the issues. And so I'm, I never shy away from making it a little bit fun or Spicy is maybe uh, also not quite the right word, but but uh, in- interesting. It's okay to be interesting. <laughs> so um, Neil and Chris, you've both written on the topic of writing in plain English, uh, specifically when it comes to communicating to people who are not lawyers. And perhaps my favorite quote comes from Neil's overview of his book, where he says that readers of a lawyer's work might describe it as turgid, pedantic, Latin-filled, jargon-ridden, misspelt, ungrammatical, and inelegant. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) So I think if we're being honest, I I think the judges and the other lawyers may think the same way with some of the writing out there. So, uh, Neil, I'd like to start with you. When, When a lawyer is communicating with his or her client who's not a lawyer, what are some of the basic writing principles that they should keep in mind? Well, this goes back to what others have said already. Just try to avoid the temptation to do the the dump of all the information that you've got in your head or that you've found through your research. You know, by all means, put that into your memo to file, but think not about you. Hey, lawyer, it's not about you. It's about your client. Uh, think what the client's after. They want an answer. They want advice. They want a risk assessment. But so think of what the purpose of the writing is but also think of who the reader is. If it's another lawyer, that's a different sort of question. But if it's someone who's a business person, someone with only a high school education, someone whose first language isn't English, think about what it is that you're trying to convey. The challenge can be that you'll have multiple audiences, so you have to kind of pitch it somewhere in the middle, uh, and that can be difficult to achieve. But always think about not you, but about the recipient. And that's really, I think, the best advice I can give. I wonder, do you think there's times where a lawyer might not be equipped in terms of of the right language, in terms of communicating with with their client? You know, you mentioned a business client. Well, if if they don't have a business background, are they equipped? Um, If they don't know sort of common terms and, and, you know, for, for their client, you know, may they not be equipped? Sometimes not. Um, that's often the case. But if you've been 
advising business clients for long enough, you do come to learn their language and you can become more comfortable with it. But sometimes that's right. You won't have the technical knowledge or vocabulary to talk intelligently to your clients. So in some cases, it may be the lawyer who's at a disadvantage and you've got to educate yourself to the extent that you can. And, and Chris, in your empirical study on this topic, um, what are some of the common issues that, that you found from the public when it comes to understanding the writings of attorneys? Well, yeah, I mean, that's uh, just kind of going off of what Neil said. I always say there's, there's really three things when we're thinking about uh, writing for the public or writing for clients. I mean, with individual clients, you kind of you get to know them and you, you can kind of further segment that. Uh, population a little bit based on what they're likely to know and what they're likely not to know. But when you're writing for the public, which I do a lot of now, um, broad documents, let's say for government agencies or, or research studies, you know, that we want to get a varied group uh, of folks in, we need consent forms. You know, there's really three things. There's, there's purpose, there's audience, and then there's problems. You know, and lawyers, we're really good at problems. We poke holes in things, we try and figure things out. That's what we're taught when we think about you know, contract drafting or legal writing, you know, it's like figure out the problems and solve them. That's, that's what we're good at, but we're not very good at purpose and audience. And by purpose, I mean more than just your individual purpose as, as a lawyer, it's what's the client's purpose. What's the purpose of the, you know, of your agency. Let's say you're a, you're an in-house lawyer for a government agency, your particular company or agency will have different purposes that are different than yours. And so we can do more than just cover the problems. And then with audience, I often think about this, and I, and I tell my students this, is like, with appellate briefs, you know, or with appellate arguments, we moot the heck out of things and practice the arguments and those type of things. But we don't ever practice the briefs, try the briefs out with our intended audiences, mm-hmm. right? So uh, how about we moot briefs, you know, and have random people sit and, ju- and you know, and read them and, and think about what you would think if you were this particular judge and, and those type of things. Uh, from a litigation perspective, but from a contract and kind of this public document perspective, what I've learned a lot, and this had nothing to do with law school, this was after law school, uh, about user testing and usability testing. And uh, most lawyers don't know anything about that and how to do it well. But when we're talking about high stakes documents, you know, like, let's say the GDPR consent forms and how people are going to use them, you know, on a website or, or uh, advanced directives, you know, the people are going to be actually, you know, right, you know, kind of signing their life away, literally. These are high stakes documents that we need to involve the audience and actually get their input on things because we can learn so much. We don't know what we don't know. And just like, you know, the curse of knowledge, this is the, this is the curse of not having the knowledge. <laughs> uh, we can learn things. I've never not learned something from user testing documents with people. And I've done prob- probably a hundred times now over the last few years since I've been uh, at the medical school, and uh, and I always learn something, you know. So that's something I don't think lawyers appreciate, and we can really weave it in. Probably more so in the public document realm than the litigation realm, but uh, but getting some of that audience perspective uh, can make a huge difference. Very interesting. I, I never thought about that about user testing a document. Very interesting. We do it all the time. You know, we do it all the time with websites. We do it all really the time. Really good idea. With everything else, <laughs> but we don't do it, somehow do it with legal documents. And I actually, I, I, I fight a lot with people about this. I'm really good at fighting with other lawyers about this. But picture a 10,000 person academic medical center that has a whole group of lawyers. And, and I am a lawyer, but I don't, I, I don't work in that department. And so I'm often fighting for, okay, we have this advanced directive and we're really trying to do it. Uh, to redo it because we are Arkansas safety net hospital 
And so we know people with very little to no literacy skills are going to be using this document. And Dr. So-and-so wants every single uh, UAMS patient to have an advanced directive by 2025. We have to plan for the marginalized people as well. And so we're going to need to bring them in so we understand what works for them and what doesn't. And when I brought in like the first iteration, I remember this one patient uh, or person saying, if you gave me this document and I came in for like a routine checkup, I'm, I would think I'm going to die. And I was like, okay, now I really need to, you know, that really meant something to me. I was like, how am I going to lead into this with the instruction page? Like, this is preventative, you know, this type of things. But, but those are things that I wasn't really thinking about. And so I learned a lot just by getting that input. Hmm. Well, Jesse and uh, Sarah, I, I know you both do a lot of editing. And so that gives you a chance to look at a lot of other writing samples from other lawyers. Sarah, I'll, I'll ask you, are there some common errors or, or bad habits that, that you've seen uh, that seem to be consistent across the lawyer's uh, work that you've edited? <laughs> yes. Uh, many bad habits, I would say. Um, I have some myself. A, a big one, and I think a, a, an easy one to fix, or one of the easier ones to fix, would be passive voice. I think people understand what that is uh, pretty easily when you point it out to them without, uh, you know, getting into the nuances of grammar and word choice. It's one that I think if you're writing quickly, you fall into passive voice pretty easily. Um, so that's a big one. And also, you know, saying five words when two or three or one will do uh, as to whether or not, you know, just say whether or in order to just say two. I think those are really common ones and relatively easy to to fix it, you're working on improving your writing style. Yeah, and Jesse, let me let me ask you the same question, but I, I want to twist it just a little bit. In that, do you think there's some generational habits that you've seen? I've written down here that you know boomers write in a passive style, or millennials forget to uh, capitalize and use punctuation because they're used to texting. And but you know, of course, uh, Marlene and I always agree that uh, us Gen Xers write write real good, so <laughs> we're good. <laughs> so, do you see any any generational uh, differences, especially if any of those differences are due to the technology that they learn to actually write on? Yeah, I can't say that I've seen, you know, a text or chat culture seep into legal documents. But but the one generational, I'd say, line in the sand is how many spaces go after a <laughs> yes, period. Yes, This is a very, oh, that one. very hotly contested right. issue at O'Melveny. Uh, um, I, I created a, a newsletter when I first got here to just sort of introduce myself to the firm and share some writing tips. And I, I pointed out to everybody that I'm, I'm not here to change your habits. I'm not, I'm not gonna, not gonna, uh, I'm not on a crusade to get rid of two spaces after a period, but let me just point out that in the civilian world, in the publishing world, nobody does this. <laughs> uh, and I think our, our younger uh, attorneys they get that there came of age in the word processing era, uh, you know, where where you just you, there's no mechanical reason to put two spaces after a period, and anyone who came of age who learned to type actually on a typewriter was probably taught two spaces after after a period, and that was truly just the the mechanical limitations of how the key uh, hits the page, and Microsoft Word has has solved that 
uh, for all yeah. of us. Um, I was actually a, a two-spacer person because I did learn on a typewriter, but it was a book that I read that was actually by the uh, O'Connor's Publishing uh, here in Texas called um, Typography for Lawyers. And, and yeah. Matthew Butter. Matthew yes. Butter. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, it's a good and one. And it actually showed an example of what the two spaces do on a page and it, that, that yeah. river flow. And so that was, you know, I had to visualize what it actually looked like, the difference between two spaces and one. Uh, with today's, with the typeography uh, that we use, typeface that we use today, and there's a, there was a difference. And I show that to my students all the time, and it really, you know, I don't think they're as, they're as uh, in awe about it like, like I was when, with you as well. I learned on the typewriter, and Sister Bertha would come around and, and almost hit our hands if we didn't have our hands <laughs> right. upright. And so my only problem to two spaces to one space now is I can't stop my thumb from automatically doing it, so I have to find and replace all the time. You know, the other area where I think technology sometimes inhibits us a little bit is I encourage lawyers to get away from their... Uh, keyboard and from their screen, because I think of that as kind of like our, that's like our multitasking uh, dashboard. And it's really hard to be creative. And, and that's part of what we're asking for. You know, even if you're writing a motion to dismiss in a securities fraud action, you still need to be creative about how you're going to approach that. What is the story you're going to tell? And maybe the best way to start that process of figuring out what your theme is, is to step away from the computer and maybe take a walk uh, or uh, go to a conference room and, and just somewhere where the chimes and buzzers are not constantly uh, breaking your, your concentration. And I often share uh, with our younger attorneys some of the rituals that um, you know famous writers and creative people have had, whether it's, um, you know, I, uh, I think uh, Gertrude Stein used to uh, soak in a bathtub or something, and um, or maybe I have that confused with uh, I don't know somebody else. Uh, everyone's got their you know uh, OCD uh, uh, rituals, but you know what they all do is um, sort of uh, allow us to step off the merry-go-round of things competing for our attention and and go off in a. I don't know, sort of like a dream place, uh, which may sound incredibly uh, impractical if you're in an environment where people are billing in six-minute increments. Is there time for that? Is that too much of a luxury? But And, and obviously, you wouldn't want to spend hours and hours and hours uh, lost in your own thoughts. But if you don't devote any time to just thinking creatively and maybe doing a free write on a, on a legal pad... Um, your your writing is going to have that very kind of rote paint by the numbers quality. I think that's a, a great point. I think that this same or similar concept can be applied in the editing side of it too. You know, once you're done, uh, no matter how many times I read through something on the computer screen, if I don't print it out and read it on paper, or you know, sometimes even read sections aloud, uh, I find you know it, it just makes a huge difference. You catch uh, errors or saying a sentence aloud, you think, I would never, you know, that doesn't sound natural, that doesn't uh, sound right, or, you know, that's just grammatically incorrect. I, I think that's a great way to, to to polish things towards the end. Yeah, I do that same thing. It's, it, you know, you read it out loud, and you're like, ooh, <laughs> that's no good. <laughs> we got to do that again. So I'm going to put this out for, for everybody. Um, 
what are some resources out there that you'd suggest lawyers use that would help them become better writers? Um, do you think some of the tech tools out there, like, you know, Brief Catch or Word Rake, you know, Grammarly, Perfect It, and, and maybe even some of those concept search tools and e-discovery will make legalese a thing of the past? Or is it something much more simple than that? If I could jump in, it's Neil. As a Canadian, I'm very uh, hesitant to recommend those software tools because they promote U.S. spelling and usage, which See? doesn't always... You've got to know your audience, right? Yeah. Well, I think Plain Language for Lawyers is, is one of the best books I've got um, by Richard. Plain English for Lawyers. Richard Wydick. Is it Wydick? Wydick, Wydick. Yeah. yep. Yep. And it's got, there's a new edition of it I published after his death. You said Richard Wittick? Richard Wittick, W-Y-D-I-C-K. Okay. Yeah. And it's, uh, I use it a lot with my students. I am not using it this year, but for probably the first 10 years I, I used it. There's, there's some really good exercises in there too. I, you, somebody mentioned Butterick's book, uh, Typography for Lawyers. I think that's really uh, a good one from the look and feel of things. Uh, like we said, it's more than just the two space to one space, but just that really makes me think a lot about how it made me think anyway how a lot of uh, documents should look it's more than just words you know if you could have and i show my students a lot in my contract drafting class this a lot i could i could have the clearest words in short sentences but if i put them in one really long paragraph in 10 point font uh and then i show them an example of a credit card agreement that does this um, nobody's going to want to read it because nobody even wants to, to devote the mental energy to even see if the, that's even worth reading because it just looks so daunting. So, uh, so I really like uh, that typography for lawyers as well. I like anything about information design and user experience. Letting Go of the Words by uh, Ginny Reddish, uh, G-I-N-N-Y uh, from Harvard. It's, this is all about web writing, but so many things about web writing on that are so applicable to what we do uh, in legal writing as well. And I think a lot of folks, uh, we focus a lot on the word and the structure and those type of things, but uh, there's just so much more to usability than just the words. That, that's, that's what I tend to focus on a lot. Uh, Sarah, I, let, let me uh, kind of wrap this up. I, I did want to take this. If you, if you are looking at a document, either as a lawyer or a client or a judge, and you're not understanding it, what what should you do? What kind of feedback uh, should you give, especially if, if you're paying, <laughs> uh, see if you're the <laughs> client and you're not understanding it, what should you, what, what should you say paying, to the lawyer? And you're paying by the yeah. minute. <laughs> At least every six minutes. <laughs> Yeah, man, I think, it, it, you know, if a client is sitting there uh, with a document uh, memo or e email is you know, more common, I think, from uh, their lawyer and thinking, I don't know what this means or what is my lawyer trying to tell me at, uh, at the end of the day, I think we failed in, in doing our job. And I would certainly advocate for the clients not to sit there and think, you know, uh, I must not be very smart or, you know, my lawyer is trying to make me not feel very smart, but go back to them and say, this isn't clear, this doesn't make sense, or what are you trying to say? Um, and th that can be a real, you know, a real light bulb moment, I think, a slightly different uh, context. But uh, several years ago, I was talking with a friend, and I said something about, you know, quid pro quo. Today, we, you know, we've all heard that word uh, a <laughs> hundred times, and I guess we all know what it means, or think we know what it means. But um, she said, I don't know what that means. What are you saying? And it, it was uh, jarring, I guess, for me because because I know what it meant. And it, but it was one of those moments where you know I had the realization that I, I surround myself with lawyers 
all day, every day. My husband is a lawyer. Um, you know, sort of my whole world is is about lawyers, and we can very much uh, forget who our audience is. So I would certainly encourage clients to say, you know, to speak up. I think that's a, absolutely a, their right to expect better writing from us. All right. Well, Neil and Chris and Jesse and Sarah, uh, I want to thank you all for being here. This is, I've really enjoyed this. So thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a really stimulating conversation. Now I have a bunch of books to read. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, I have to say that this was one of my favorite discussions that we've done. So, it was good. Yeah, there's just great advice, not only for legal writing, but for, you know, for writing and communication in general. I did write down one of Sarah Harris's comments where she said to make sure that you are telling a story and that story is from a perspective that will tell the reader why the story matters. So you have to answer the reader's question of so what? So what does it matter to me? What's in it for me? What's in it for and me? What's in it for me? Or why, why should this matter to me? Right, right. I agree. Um, so many good takeaways in, in this one. And the idea of, of panel reviews for draft documents. Mm. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, because this plays out time and time again. None of us is as smart as all of us. And that t-shirt already exists. Go to marketplace.com. <laughs> All right. So thanks again to our guest today. We had Neil Guthrie from Aaron and Barris, Chris Trudeau from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, Jesse Katz from O'Melveny, and Sarah Harris from Jackson Walker. I definitely think they got, gave us a lot to think about when it comes to our own writing. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go... We want to remind listeners to take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at, at GayBauerM or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270, or you can email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the wonderful music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk to you later. All right, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>